Don't you wish there was an app that let you know which one of the people you know was an opinionated, bigoted, racist, misogynistic, conspiracy theory idiot? Oh wait, there is. In fact, there are many of them, and collectively they're known as social media. That's a big problem, says Dr. Cody Bunton, an assistant professor at the University of Maryland's College of Information Studies. Dr. Bunton points out that TikTok is trying to address this issue by launching its ineligible for you feed. That's where the app will automatically control your feed. It's a feature that is part of TikTok's policy uh, aimed at changing or promoting safety, security, and well-being for users. And all of those issues are part of the dark side of social media. In an American Economic Review study called The Welfare Effects of Social Media, it states the rise of social media has provoked both optimism about societal benefits and concerns about harms such as addiction, depression, and political polarization. Or as John Verveek, the author of Zombies in Western Culture, asks, are we losing touch with reality? I invited Dr. Cody Buntain to join me for a conversation that matters about the good, the bad, and the ugly of social media and what you can do to protect yourself. Cody, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me start by asking you, does ubiquitous computing render life into a series of discontinuous chunks? In, in essence, does the constant stream of pulses and push notifications interfere with our ability to focus? Yeah, this is a great question. While I think there's a lot of uh, positive value in social media, I think you can say, and there's good evidence of this, that uh, over the past several decades, our attention span has decreased. Now, whether this is directly attributable to social media, I think is, is up for debate, but we do see and with the with the advent of things like TikTok, where you have explicitly short videos that people can quickly scroll through, uh, I think yeah, this does have some impact on our ability to focus. And does that then start to interfere with the way in which we are interacting with the world? And I ask that because I have a twenty-one or twenty-three-year-old daughter who goes, uh, you know, I can't just log off. This is my reality. Yes, I live in the physical world, but I also live online. Yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence about how people use social media to portray a particular version of themselves. And this means that you can't really trust a lot of social media anyway, uh, but people will curate themselves and the image they present and the life that they want to present on social media in oftentimes very uh, in, uh, intentional ways. And there's real value in that control that you have because, you know, can you post this thing and then take it down? Can you curate what particular images you want to present of yourselves? I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of appeal to that for people. Do you think it's a good thing? No, I, I think that's that's the appropriate perspective. That there are good things and bad things about this. Uh, I mean, clearly there are bad things about potential impacts it has on on your ability to focus or what you prioritize. Certainly there's concerns about mental health, about if you're constantly comparing yourself to people you see on Instagram who are knowingly putting up a uh, idealized version of their lives. At the same time, social media provides you a level of connection and, and social support that's really important that you may not be able to have in the physical world based on you know, where you are, your location, your, your uh, 
regional social social and cultural uh, environment. When we take a look at a lot of these social media tools um, and and apps, they allow us to be connected and in some ways empower us. But frequently, are they actually having the opposite effect? I think we're we're not in the place where we can clearly and definitively say that they are consistently having the opposite effect. I think there's good evidence that there is connective value. So, you know, echo chambers exist, but they're not always bad. Uh, at the same time, there's evidence that people are less happy when they're exposed to social media. There's a great study from a couple of years ago that paid people to stay off Facebook uh, by uh, Alcott and Ginskow. It's an economics study. And people who were paid to stay off Facebook reported being more happy, but less politically engaged or less politically informed than people who were on Facebook, uh, who were allowed to stay on Facebook. So those people were less happy, but more informed about the political environment. So there's, there's definitely pros and cons here. That's an interesting little conundrum, isn't it? Uh, less happy, but more informed. But were they accurately informed? You know, I, I'm reminded of a wonderful uh, uh, answer from Denzel Washington one time when he asked somebody, he said, well, where did you get that information? And they said, well, I read it online. And, uh, and he goes, ah, okay, well, there's the problem. Uh, you're misinformed. And they said, well, uh, what should I do? You go off social media? And he goes, well, no, then you'll be uninformed. And this is, <laughs> this is a really interesting challenge. Uh, so how then, if, if now we live in a world where we have a, a question about something, the answer is, or could be, depending on whether or not the algorithms mess with how you respond to things, could just be a Google search away. Um, and in the past, you know, if you really wanted to find something out, you had to do a fair bit of work to figure out where the truth was. Today, the information comes in, goes back out. Are we retaining it? Are we really getting a sense of you know, reality and of ourselves? This is a good question. I think partially what happens is when we're engaging on social media, there's a, a different set of interests, right? So there's one part of you that is engaging emotionally. They're just, you're just crawling through some feed of, of people's content. And then you're engaging emotionally with that content not necessarily engaging uh, skeptically or engaging in a thoughtful way about the quality of that content. Uh, and there's some evidence that if we prime people about, well, before you share this content, do you think it's legitimate? Do you think it's authentic? Do you, do you, are you familiar with the source? The standard sort of uh, media literacy questions, then people are much better at what they choose to share, which is evidence that it's not a question of like, people are just bad at this. It's more that people are, are not primed to think that way when they're engaging on social media. They're in a different headspace, you might say. So do they need to, uh, in essence, give their head a little shake and think a little bit before they <laughs> hit the, the pass button? Because I know that you have studied a fair bit about how people use uh, social media and the information. What are your tips uh, to people to ensure that they're not going to do something that might embarrass them or make them feel you know, as though they've done harm or, you know, even even worse. Uh, how, how do people move forward? That's a great question. And it's it's a really hard question. So I think probably the best answer is if you are going to tr share some piece of, of information, look to see if it's been corroborated by some authoritative source. Uh, and this is where the problem lies, because what what 
constitutes an authoritative source is really uh, somewhat up to de up for debate, depending on on your political viewpoint or or your you know social embedding, right? But if you if you find something that's shared by the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, or by uh, some reputable journalist, and you can find corroboration from that from multiple other places, then that's a better piece of information to share. There's no guarantee that it's true. There's a whole a whole list of times where even authoritative sources can get things wrong. Uh, but that's one one good way. Uh, now there are a whole there's a whole separate thing in social media about sharing things that might cause harm. Uh, and it's unclear like what good strategies are to avoid saying things that might cause harm. I think being open to uh, revision and, and curation of what you have said is, is maybe a reasonable approach there. That if you post something and it ends up getting uh, a significant negative backlash, be willing to take it down and apologize and say uh, that that was wrong. Because sometimes you get things wrong on social media, probably more often than not. Sometimes you get things wrong in the physical world as well. I think that that's good advice to be able to say, oh, I'm going to remain open to the fact that uh, my opinion isn't the only one. You know, I want to go back to a little bit about what TikTok is doing with a ineligible for you. Uh, in essence, they're using artificial intelligence to determine what is and isn't an appropriate content for you. Is that not also a bit tricky as well? Because what if it starts to say, oh, I see that you like this kind of information. And so even though you maybe are, are seeking to source information from another place, uh, you go to type in and whatever search engine you're on has started to determine that you like particular groups. And so they're going to push you towards that answer rather than to a broader uh, perspective. So how, if that's the case, how then do I as a user get beyond that and find additional perspectives? Now that's a great question. There's, a good, there's good evidence that's, that search engines don't bias you one way or the other in a significant way. What really is gonna bias you when you're trying to, it's like say you see some video on TikTok or on YouTube and you wanna find corroborating evidence for that, uh, the thing that's going to bias your results more is the language you use in your search. So if you're looking for like COVID genocide versus COVID vaccines, right? Or does like COVID or do COVID vaccines cause um, some particular kind of, of side effect that is only discussed in this particular context about a conspiracy, then that language is going to push you to other people who have discussed that content in the same way. Uh, the search engine themselves are less likely to push you one way or the other. But this is a big problem when you have a lot of these curated systems. So TikTok's feed curation, YouTube's feed curation, Facebook, Twitter, all of these engage in some form of this. And how they are trying to sanitize their content and do so in a way that's responsible is a really hard problem. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, one of the other things that I that I worry about, even in my own case, um, is I, I look for an answer, I get an easy answer. So then I'm, you know, I move towards that. Uh, but I was doing some reading in preparation for our interview that talked about when you don't actually 
take those steps to, to figure out what's going on. In essence, we're uh, reducing our own personal uh, agency, a sense of our, uh, our abilities to control our actions and then understand what their consequences are. We're just plowing forward. You know, is this a, a significant concern or, or even a legitimate concern? I would say it's definitely a legitimate concern. And there's been a lot of research into this to try and understand, well, what is the effect of a system that has the opportunity to take some of that agency from you? Uh, so when YouTube is going to recommend a particular video to you or YouTube or TikTok is going to put a video in your feed or Twitter is going to put a particular post higher up on your on your feed than somebody else. Uh, in some sense, that's taken away agency from the from the individual using the software. Uh, on the other hand, that's valuable because there's just way too much content. Like there's there's too much too much content on YouTube, too much content on, on Twitter and TikTok to go through it manually. So there's a huge amount of evidence that providing people with some decision support system here that gives you content that you're more likely to enjoy has value in a lot of different ways. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a concern about, well, it offloads some of that responsibility of the content that you consume. So now you can say, oh, I didn't choose to search for this. It just showed up in my feed and then I consumed it. And people are really concerned about, well, if you do that enough, do people, does, this, does the feed nudge you into really dark corners of the internet? I think we have good evidence that that's not true for, for major, uh, like for the major platforms. Uh, it can happen, but it, it, it seems to be ex quite rare, but it's definitely a big concern. So, you know, you made an interesting point. There's just so much stuff online. The volume of information and knowledge is, is so exceptional that it's very difficult for you to weed your way through. When the internet first came along, I thought, wow, this is so fantastic. We're going to have uh, access to accurate information and we're all going to be so much better informed. We'll have, you know, well, I sure was wrong about that. Um, one of the things, though, and, and, and I wonder about this because I believe that it's a natural and uh, universal human uh, pursuit is to try and understand uh, meaning, the meaning of uh, everything that, we, that happens to us, how it happens, why it happens, the meaning of our lives and where we fit in. Does social media help us answer those questions? So this is a great question too, and fits in with some of the original work that got me started on this. So back in 2013, I was, do, I was doing my dissertation and I was watching the Boston Marathon bombing unfold on live television. And my recollection is one of the major news broadcasters was interviewing the Boston chief of police. And then below that interview, they had to scroll about what they had heard about the event, uh, primarily sourced from social media. And there was, significant disconnect between what people were saying on social media and what the Boston chief of police was saying. Uh, so in that sense, I mean, that's, that's objectively bad, right? Social media has incorrect information and mainstream media is reporting on it without the ability to particularly verify it well. But in the aftermath of disasters, collective sense-making is hugely important. People go to social media, go to these places where there is information to help them understand what's going on in the world. And when you have major events or major crises, oftentimes there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of misinformation that gets propagated while the community tries to figure out, well, what really is the truth here? And social media can help that. So it can help people uh, 
gain some understanding or insight into, into what has happened. Frequently, however, though, I watch the response. It could be a misinformed response that can be fairly lengthy, or the uh, overused, oh, how sad, or my heart goes out to them. Does that actually give us a sense of community and uh, collective understanding of, of what has happened? Uh, right. So it is the case that in the aftermath of most disasters, you see huge volumes of people saying you know, thoughts and prayers. Uh, my thoughts are with the victims. And we, we have good evidence that this happens regardless of what the kind of crisis is from tornadoes to terrorist attacks to earthquakes people all over the world will engage in that kind of thing. Uh, in some sense, I think there's value in the social support aspect. People want to feel engaged and involved, like they're doing something uh, positive by sharing that content. Now, certainly there's there's some performative aspect to it. People are gonna say that because when you have like the Nepal, the Nepal earthquake in 2015, people could use that hashtag and then get large amounts of exposure because they're engaging in this conversation. Uh, but I think, for a particular group of people who are not physically approximate, they're not directly uh, impacted by the uh, event, they're still motivated to try and engage and share uh, their feelings. And I think there's real community building or community value there. There's not a lot of informational value there, certainly, uh, but I think there's at least value for, the, for many of the people who engage in that way. You know, I can't help but, go, of course, go to the, ah, what should I be afraid of side of this equation? But there are positive aspects as well. And I, and I remember a, a couple of years ago, and I'm not sure if Facebook still does this, uh, let's say you knew somebody was traveling and there was an event that uh, was uh, serious, caused uh, damage, people died, uh, th that a person that you knew who was in that area could post, I'm safe. Uh, and this was a really, I thought, a very positive uh, component of not just Facebook, but probably other social media that you were able to share widely and quickly with people that you were okay and that they could give them some peace of mind. Right. So I believe this is Facebook's safe alert process. Uh, right. That may not be the name, but yes, that, and th this is, a, I think, a really valuable piece that social media can provide. And a couple of years ago, there was a paper about uh, using Facebook to track evacuation routes in the after in the lead up to uh, hurricane landfall in the United States. So there's a lot of really valuable information that Facebook has about how people respond to crises. And that particular thing that allows somebody to very quickly and rapidly disseminate their safety, I think is, a, is really a valuable thing. It, does social media also play a positive role when there is a collective uh... I want to say uprising because I think about, um, you know, the, the use of social media to bring people together to uh, stand up and say, hey, we do not like the way that this government is doing this or that. Uh, that there are benefits to be had there. Yeah, so this is, this is I think, the real hope that people had for social media uh, in like the mid-2010s, right? So in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, the view of social media was that it was going to bring about a new wave of democratization globally. Uh, and to some degree, that's that's true. And even now, when we go back and look at social media in, in the discussions around Black Lives Matter, there's just recently been a paper published about how uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the use of social media around it really did move the needle 
on public discourse in the United States uh, and engaged more people with more uh, topics about concerns around police brutality and inequality in the United States in a really uh, pro-social way. So I think that was definitely a good thing. At the same time, now we're seeing more governments being more interested in using social media and new media sources to push their message in a way that they weren't doing, say, 10, 8 to 10 years ago, uh, which I think has really altered the playing field. Now you have a lot more people on social media who have a large following and are using that to push a, a very particular message uh, that is not always a, a pro-social one. So in the history of things, social media is still relatively new. Are we really just going through growing pains? Because we don't want to say, okay, there are some issues there, therefore let's just uh, try and, and, and convince everybody that they should log off. I, I don't think that that's realistic. Do you think it's just going to take us time collectively to work our way through some of these issues and, and, and then find a more reasoned use of this powerful tool? Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to look at it, that we're in still relatively early days compared to other kinds of, of media sources. So concerns about fake news and mis and disinformation are not new and have been around for uh, several hundred years. And people said the same thing about radio that they say about social media today. That said, I think we really are in this place where social media allows you to be faster and exposed to more things uh, that we have not figured out how to deal with, either the speed or the exposure of that content. Uh, and I think that's really what the, the goal of what TikTok is trying to do with its uh, ineligible for you mechanism and YouTube's uh, de-recommendation mechanism. Because the, these, these processes are so fast and people post content way faster than any human can get in front of it, there is some important responsibility that the platform has to try and ensure that the content that you are being recommended, not necessarily the content that you can search for, or the content that you can find, but the content that the platform is going to recommend to you, the platform has some responsibility to make sure that's good or, or reasonable or pro-social content. Well, the platform may have some responsibility, but I think that we as individuals have the the, the the lion's share of that responsibility. We have to think our way through, is this uh, content that I believe to be accurate? Uh, and should I send it on or should I take a moment and find out a little bit more before I hit, um, you know, the button that's going to expose it? Thank you very much for your time today and, and this fascinating and wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you about it. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much.